It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We are reunited. It's like when you go back to school after the summer holidays, isn't it? And you sort of think, oh no, I've got that kid that I've been trying to avoid. <laughs> well, I'm glad to see that you haven't had a big growth spurt no, during the summer. That is true. Or a sort of bad haircut. That's normally what you yeah. go back to school with, like a bad haircut. You weren't choosing to go back to school with a bad haircut so that you would be further ostracised by your peers. No, I think it was just a sort of bad haircut, really. You look refreshed, you look rejuvenated, you look ready for the autumn. Ready for action. Uh, and what about you? Yeah, I've had a great summer. I've been all over the place. We were in Sweden for a while. We went to Edinburgh. I had a thing to do at the TV festival. We've been to Macclesfield. We've been to Liverpool. I think that's the classic summer, isn't it? Sweden, Edinburgh, Liverpool, Macclesfield. Um, yeah, it is a um, not the classic tour. And then in Edinburgh, I was there for the TV festival. So alongside the Fringe, they have the, the television industry's annual conference. And I chaired a panel on reboots. And do you want to know what's coming back? Us. I'm not strictly sure we ever went away. We're, so we're not a reboot. Quite... Okay, okay. Let me, let, me, let me guess my top three. Rent-A-Ghost, Mr. Ben... Or Bagpuss? No, it wasn't the saggy old ragpuss. I'm going to tell you what's coming back. It's going to be a big thing. I, th- I think on the BBC, Gladiators. Mm. Were you a fan? No, it was on ITV, wasn't it? I think it was the first time round, yeah. I wasn't my thing, really. Mine either. I don't think I'm You're I've not ever... suggesting I do like celebrity gladiators, are you? Well, I was thinking about this before we started recording. I was thinking if Ed, Ed was one of the new gladiators, what would his gladiator name be? Because, you know, there's Wolf and Jet. Do they have names? Yes. Can you picture Wolf from Gladiators? No, I just really, it just pa- totally passed me by. I wonder if this was because it was the 90s. Was it and, the 90s? Uh, I think it was early 90s. Were you... Working for Gordon Brown, you, yes. So G- Gordon Brown had you locked up in a cupboard. Yeah, I don't think I would have been watching Gladiators. Um, Shall I tell you the Gladiator name that I came up with for you? Badger. Yeah, maybe. No. You come on in a small singlet, your resplendent grey oh, streak. God, please. Uh, poor listeners. <laughs> now... My achievement of the summer, or achievements of the summer, mm. have been on the culinary front. Mm. Have you been BBQing? No. Um, I've got two culinary achievements to report. If I said potato latka to you, what would you say? Oh, they're, they're fantastic. They're potato pancakes, basically. Yes. Now, the, yes. I once tried to make potato pancakes in my uh, parents-in-law's house, and the kitchen was a sort of disaster area, because basically you grate the potatoes... And then it's just water is everywhere from the potatoes. And then, so I thought, right, I'm going on holiday. I thought, I'm going to crack this. And I suddenly found a recipe that gave me the answer, which is you bake the potatoes first and then you grate them. And has that unlocked a whole world of latka for you? Honestly, I've then made the potato latkes and my family love them. Great. And what do you have on them? A bit of sour cream? Well, we never quite got around to that, but ideally, yes. And then the second achievement, and you would be proud of me for this. Do you know the, do you know the restaurant Dishoom? I do, yes, I like it. And I have the Dishoom cookbook. So I decided, right, 
I am going to try and make at home what we ate in Dishoo. The dal. The black dal, the dal machne. Yeah, I think it's called uday dal or uden dal. Anyway, this dal, I tell you, Jeff, it's not for the faint-hearted because there's five hours of cooking involved. First of all, I couldn't find the udon dal. Right. Um, so I had to go with a sort of some kind of dal substitute. But anyway, I cooked it for five hours. And, I mean, you and I know the pain of the black bean episode. And I'm afraid this looked like a sort of black bean situation. Uh, sort of, does it, did it look like something you might resurface a motorway with? I mean, yes. And also, I have to say, my, my um, confidence was at a low point because Justine sort of entertained my children over the summer by saying that a mushroom omelette I'd made tasted like a rat's nest. <laughs> She'd initially said it wasn't great, but then she, right. she then sort of felt that there was a sort of statute of limitations which allowed her to be much ruder about it. So, I, so but, but, but there is a sort of positive outcome to this story. It's a happy ending, which is actually, she really liked the doll. Wow. But it is a big investment. I mean, she says time. that to your face. No, no, I think I can tell, I think. What are you doing for those five hours? Like you're doing a lot of cooking. You're not you're not, you're not just stirring for five hours. No, but you it's got to sort of break down into something quite creamy. But I also didn't use cream, which they use double cream. I do not understand how you can be so fast and loose with the recipe and substitutions. I go into a tailspin if I haven't got the exact right ingredients in the quantities described in a recipe. And I'm not a great sort of lentil fan. You know what I mean? So. That's not bad, is it? Congratulations. And the children quite like the chicken tikka. They didn't care for the doll, but that's sort of fine. And I guess because you made your own substitutions, you could give it your own name. You could call it a rat's nest doll. I think we've got to draw a veil over the rat's nest because it was, it was, <laughs> it was a real confidence. It was a real knock to the confidence, the rat's nest <laughs> situation. Shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? Let's talk about it, yes. We're going youth hosteling. At last, I thought you would never invite me. I thought our, our youth would slip away before the invitation came. Um, this week, we're talking about the news that the Youth Hostel Association is selling off 20 of its 150 properties. And we're, we're going to be celebrating the work that the YHA has done over the years to open up the outdoors to a wider range of people. We'll be speaking to Sally Nutland from the charity about that. And then uh, we're turning to two great guests, Haroon Mota, who is the founder of Muslim Hikers, and Talia Randall. They're both keen advocates for nature access. Uh, and we're going to ask them about why nature is still out of reach for so many people and what we can do to change that. Jeff, what's your reason to be cheerful? I found my sport. What is it? Well, I want to add the caveat that I don't, I don't mean as a participant, I mean as a spectator. Let me guess. Pickleball? No, it's a good guess. Snooker? I mean, Darts? None of the above. Scrabble? Scra no, is, it, is Scrabble a sport? I mean, this is interesting. Where is the line? When does something Believe become a sport? Believe it or not, I once debated this in the House of Commons, what, what was a sport? Because of part of a charities bill that I was bringing in, and I think there was a sport category, and we had a long debate, and there was a long debate about whether chess was a sport or not. And what conclusion did you I reach? I can't remember. <laughs> was there a vote? I can't remember that either. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I've never enjoyed any sport, particularly as a spectator. And then when we were on holiday, we went to an island in the Baltic called Gotland. Now, yes. you might have heard of this yes. because all the Swedish parties yes. descend on it for a political week yes. once every year. But, but there is another event that my son really wanted to go to that happens at the beginning of August every year. The, the capital is a town called Visby, which is a beautiful old medieval city. And they have medieval week. We went to a jousting tournament 
and it was fantastic. I have to say, I was sort of dragged there, not entirely willingly. It's sort of friendly jousting, is it? Oh, yeah, no one died. They're hitting targets, so they're jousting towards targets. I mean, it sounds quite non-combative. I think that's right. I mean, maybe we've, we're onto something, Jeff, here, which is you mm. could be the BBC jousting correspondent. Hugely available. I mean, Jonathan Agnew is the BBC cricket correspondent. You could be the BBC jousting correspondent. Uh, my agent's details are in my Twitter bio. I think, I think we're onto something. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that one of my favourite TV series is back, and that is Only Murders in the Building. Yes. And series three is here, and it has Meryl Streep in it. Who people will know from Mamma Mia, if you don't recognise the name. <laughs> um, when it's a programme you're watching and someone like Meryl Streep joins it, it's almost like vindication. Do you know what I mean? Yes. You sort of think to yourself, well, it must be a good programme. It shows I've got good taste because Meryl Streep's in the programme. Yes. And I'll tell you who else is in it in this new series. Paul Rudd, and he's very funny in it. Yes. Oh, it's just, it's sort of pure escapism, but wonderful escapism. I think it's a real return to form Yes, as that's well, what Justine thinks too, actually. I felt there was a bit of a lull in season two. It's like getting into long lost daughters and secret tunnels, but I think it's it's come back extremely strong. And also it just doesn't require any kind of, it's not trying to be sort of emotional or moving or, you know. You know <laughs> that's it. You squash those emotions down. No, but you know what I mean? It's sort of like just a bit kind of, Fun. It's just a fun show about murders. As the nights draw in. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, to start the conversation, we're thrilled to be joined by Sally Nutland, who is communications manager at YHA, the Youth Hostel Association. Hello, Sally. Hello, Jeff. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, well, thanks for talking to us. And how long have you worked for the YHA? It's actually my 11 year anniversary this week. Congratulations. Uh, so I've been, I've been here a good long time. How will you be celebrating? Oh, probably a cheeky Prosecco on Friday, maybe. <laughs> in a youth hostel? Maybe. I think we do do Prosecco, actually, in the modern YHA, so maybe. Already this is uh, <laughs> turning my preconceptions about youth hostels on, on the head. But um, we're going to talk about this news that YHA is going to have to sell off uh, 20 of its properties sure. uh, in a couple of minutes. But before that, do you just want to give us a bit of background? Maybe people don't know about the YHA in the mm -hmm. first place. So it was set up in 1930. 1930, that's right. So the movement itself internationally started in 1912 with Richard Sherman in Germany. And we took a, a good 20 years to kind of look at what we were going to do. But it is part of this social reformist movement. They were worried over how to get young people in cities out into the countryside, healthy pursuits, part of the countryside access, access movement. Never before could a young person have somewhere where they'd find affordable, warm welcome and then could move on to somewhere else the next day and, and really explore the landscapes of England and Wales. Interesting, because that's something we've talked about on the podcast quite a lot about, you know, who is the countryside for? Mm. You know, who, who feels welcome in the countryside? Who feels like it should be their space? And, and, and of course, we should all is the answer, but that's not yeah. always the case. And it's interesting to know that those conversations were happening back when YHA was set up as well. Absolutely. People, pioneering people, really very progressive people. We've got roots in Quakerism. 
We've got roots in social reform, as I said, pacifist, people really kind of in love with the idea of national landscapes being available to everybody. The fact that it should be affordable to everybody, was was that part of the DNA of it, if you like? Absolutely. Affordability was at the very heart of it. And back in the day, you know, this we could keep costs low because it was entirely volunteer run and led by young people. So they wanted a hostel in their area. So they'd find a building, ask the landlord, you know, can can we use it, do it up, run it themselves? And people would do chores in the 30s and 40s. And that kept the cost base down, of course. And it's something that we continue this day is try and make it as affordable as possible for people to see these amazing landscapes and landmarks. Now, Sally, I want to ask something. I think Ed would have liked to have asked this, but he was, he was feeling a bit bashful. <laughs> Do, do you have to be a youth to stay in a uh, a youth hostel? Hashtag asking for a friend. As, because <laughs> you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a much younger man than Ed, so I imagine it's not a problem for me. You're but... in the age group, but you're saying <laughs> I might be more in the saga age group, and therefore... Yes. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely not. You don't have to be a youth to stay. Um, as a charity, we focus our targeted support towards youth. But what we're really about as as an organisation is equitable access to adventure for the first time and a lifetime. Everyone from families with small children, staying in private rooms, doing their own thing, using hostels as a jump off point for their holidays, all the way through to we've got 80 and 90 year olds that stay that have been with us for our entire journey. And they'll come to hostels because they know they're guaranteed a good conversation in a a social space where they're going to meet other people and be all the richer for it. If you don't stay in a private room, what's the key to getting the top bunk? Uh, that's a negotiation with okay. your bunkie. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And and always first come, first serves is a, is a rule that keeps, seems to stand. Tell us about you, some of your best memories of staying in youth hostels over the years, Sally. I've stayed in loads, of course. But my favourite anecdote is when I volunteer managed White Hate in Tadjil down on the south coast. And uh, just it really opened my eyes to, it was fairly early on in my kind of career with YHA, opened my eyes to just the different people that stay with us. So we had one fella in his early 80s that had, he was taking a week out to write poetry by the coast. We had the Lycra lads that were doing their Land's End to John O'Groats and, and working their way back around the coast. And then we had a group of, I think it was 10 or 12 20-something girls that were all dressed as King Arthur on a Hindu. Wow. Where else do you get this sharing? That is diversity. Absolutely. And talk to us about why the charity's work has become so much more difficult to sustain in the last few years. It comes as no surprise. You know, we're not immune from the, the impact of lockdown, inflationary pressures, the cost base on electricity, recruitment crisis. And then, of course, you know, we are at the more affordable end. We're at the the lower cost end and all of our work is supported by, you know, our user base. It's That's where we get our, our kind of funds from. And of course, schools. I mean, about a third of our income comes from welcoming school groups. And, you know, that there isn't a, a more squeezed purse than edu- in education at the moment. Were things in fairly robust shape prior to the pandemic? Have visitor numbers been steady for a long time? Oh, I'm really happy to say that, that, you know, it was working. We'd gone through 10 years of modernisation, which had really brought up the standard in hostels and, and would amaze you to, to see actually the, the standard that hostels have got to these days. And so we consecutive year on year 
growth in terms of income, but also impact. So a million people through our doors every year. And then, of course, the pandemic. And tell us about the selling off of these properties then. Mm. You've described the financial circumstances behind it, but just talk to us a bit more about that decision. Our network is is really diverse. It's currently around 150 properties. Now, we've got a lot of historic buildings, characterful buildings, but you can't standardise those easily. Now, at the heart of this plan to get us out and not only surviving the crisis, but thriving so the charity continues for another 90 years, we've got to cut our costs. We've got to bring in efficiencies. We know that the majority of our income and impact comes from a core set of hostels. Of course, it's brilliant to have the breadth across England and Wales, but we know that that's by retaining this core strategic network, we're going to retain and grow the work that we do. We're also looking at a model of franchising, which we've we've had private ownership since the 1930s, but now we're formalising that as putting 20 hostels on the market, often smaller hostels, and we're looking to work in partnership with local entrepreneurs. You know, we sincerely hope that they will stay as hostels. But that's not a condition of the sale. Absolutely not a condition. It's just our hope. It's our hope. What seems so frustrating is a sense that we've had on the podcast from a lot of the conversations we have had is that the pandemic actually, there was a reconnection with nature and spending time with nature that a lot of people felt and have continued in the years since the restrictions were lifted. And and it feels like really it could be even more of a resurgence for YHA, mm. but you've got this millstone around your neck because of those those years of lockdown. I think you're absolutely right. Lockdown did create a pent-up appetite for connection with nature. And we certainly saw a, a bubble effect after, immediately afterwards. And we saw new people through our doors. It was absolutely amazing. But I think, you know, the reality remains that we've got a larger state that needs to be heated and energy cost is a big thing. We've looked at a number of different ways to go ahead, but this is this is the way ahead that we can see that we'll continue to do what we do best and hopefully bring partners on board so that they can do what they do best. I asked you earlier on about your best memories of staying in youth hostels over the years. If our listeners are looking for a, a sort of September holiday, where would you like to send them, Sally? I think everyone should start with YHA Boggle Hole. So it's on the Yorkshire Heritage Coast and... It's an amazing name. and Give us the name again. YHA Boggle Hole. Boggle Hole. Boggle Hole. Just a short walk from Robin Hood's Bay. The mind boggles. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's a fantastic place, especially for children. Fantastic. So parents, uh, they get dumped at the door by their kids who go and meet their new best mates and do a treasure hunt round and try and find all the piratey bits around it. It's fantastic. And I need to ask you about chores. Yeah. What, what, what is expected? And nothing's expected. As I say, chores, chores were, are a thing of the past and they suited their purpose at the time. What if Jeff wanted to do chores? You absolutely can lend a hand and we have a, a vibrant volunteering programme. Um, and sometimes that's how people travel for free is they'll join us on a, a hostel placement to make beds for other guests and things like that. And, and they can travel very cost effectively that way. So you're very welcome, Jeff. I, th- I see myself more as a, a you know a, a supervisor, stroke constructive critic of of chores. Oh, we've plenty of them. Great <laughs> washer upper. I, w- I would definitely watch you wash up, Ed, and give you some uh, give you some pointers. I'm a washer upper. I'm I'm. Or maybe Jeff, you and I could cook. Absolutely. You want to be uh, careful here, Sally. You, you need to see some photographs <laughs> of Ed's cooking. <laughs> 
before you agree I, to that. Might, I, might, I, might, I might sort of finish off the youth hosteling industry, Jeff is saying, with my, <laughs> with my cooking. Well, we'll let you loosen the self-catering kitchen for a practice. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think that's probably sensible, prudent. <laughs> Just speak to us a little bit more about the work you do with children, because I, I know there's a, a particular initiative that's been very important to YHA. Absolutely. So our No Child Left Behind appeal is a million pound appeal to try and fund school residentials for children that otherwise would miss out. So we're fundraising at the moment and making sure that they can come along, have those formative experiences, because really, you know, there, there is an attainment gap, but there's risk of being a, an experience gap for children. All support welcome. Do you want to um, finish off with a reason to be cheerful? It is disheartening hearing that you're, you're having to let go of these properties, but give us a reason to feel upbeat about youth hostels and what they mean for access to nature for people. I think the, the spirit of adventure remains. And, you know, as an organisation, I think what we're really good at is appreciating that there are grassroots organisations out there doing fantastic work in bringing young people and communities out of their areas into nature and the outdoors, appreciating culture and heritage. And I think YHA will live on, I think, because it, it, it has to. It's the best education out there. Well, look, Sally Nutland, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you for the tips. And Jeff will be coming to a youth hostel near you soon to do right. some chores, won't you, Jeff? <laughs> See you in Bogglehole. See you in Bogglehole, as they say. Great to speak to you. Thank you. To carry on the conversation, I'm glad to say that we're joined by Talia Randall and Haroon Mota. Talia is a writer, performer and podcaster. She wrote and produced a podcast series about accessing nature called Blossom Trees and Burnt Out Cars, and that's available on BBC Sounds. And Haroon is founder of Muslim Hikers and the Active Inclusion Network. Thank you so much both for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. Happy to be here. We've just spoken to Sally from the Youth Hostel Association about the closure of 20 youth hostels. Could you tell us what kind of loss this represents to you both in terms of, 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 of what's going to happen? Talia, why don't you start? Well, obviously it's a huge loss for just affordable travel in the UK. But to me, it's got me thinking about the economic picture a bit more broadly. I'm wondering if there's a link between things like second home ownership or holiday home ownership and all the letting that, that is happening in, say, the Lake District or whatever, and people opting for those options instead of going to youth hostels. I think it also is making me think about like local connection to nature and how that's declining. So if we're not seeing people from cities, especially getting out in their local green space or park, it's not going to ladder up to those like bigger hiking adventures. And I think that's something that I can say for myself. So I grew up in London and the idea of going out hiking in the countryside was when I was younger, not something that I really considered because maybe I didn't have that like deep connection to local green space. So I think it's like part of that broader story. And how about you, Huron? You're a, you're a youth hostel fan. I am indeed. Uh, I'm at a youth hostel uh, this weekend uh, in the Yorkshire Dales and I was there last week at YHA Patterdale and I discovered that that's one of the hostels that would be up for sale as well. I think it's important to understand that mm. For many ethnic minority communities, engaging with nature and the outdoors isn't necessarily part of our cultural and lifestyle norms. So facilities like the YHA act as a catalyst, not just in providing a place to stay, but also introducing people to the very concept of outdoors as a recreational and enriching experience. And the YHA has historically served as a vital bridge, making the great outdoors accessible to everyone. 
for many people, especially those of ethnic minority communities, you know, the sheer cost of traveling to and staying in the countryside can be a significant deterrent. So, you know, the YIT has been crucial in providing a cost-effective solution. So there will be a ripple effect. So whilst, you know, there's a decision to sell 20 hostels, it might seem like a mere drop in the ocean given their extensive network, but we need to recognize the ripple effect that this could have. I mean, every hostel serves as a gateway for countless individuals, especially from underrepresented communities, to experience the British countryside. Only this year, our own collaboration with the YHA was a testament to the difference that these facilities can make. We recently held our first ever residential adventure weekend, which was a resounding success, bringing 120 people together for two nights at YHA Castleton in the Peak District. And events like this, you know, foster community spirit and a collective appreciation of nature. And uh, we hope that we can carry on. And Harun, talk to us about what inspired you to set up Muslim Hikers in 2020. So I've been hiking and adventuring for nearly 20 years now. I recognise that the same level of diversity that I would see in my hometown of Coventry, it wasn't reflected in rural spaces. Over the years, I realised that there was a lack of diversity in the outdoors, a lack of inclusion, primarily down to the fact that we have the lack of outdoors embedded within our cultural and lifestyle norms. During the pandemic, in September 2020, I set up the Muslim Hikers Instagram page. This was purely for the purpose of creating online community to try and normalise the outdoors for ethnic minorities and at the same time to tackle loneliness and isolation. Uh, The page just rapidly grew and received so much recognition and appreciation, not just here in the UK, but globally. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years, we're now the largest community in the world for Muslims interested in the outdoors. And I believe that our hiking events, our hiking event portfolio, boasts the largest known regular walking events in the country. I mean, every other weekend we're out hiking with 150 to 200 people. This weekend we're we're in Malham in the Yorkshire Dales with 150 people. And last weekend we were in the Lake District. We promote safety in numbers. Our events promote safety, confidence and awareness in the outdoors. These are people that wouldn't otherwise get outside because of lack of confidence, wouldn't otherwise go outside because they feel they don't belong in the outdoors. People often ask us, you know, why are you call Muslim hikers? What has your faith got to do with going outside? It's got everything to do with community. Community is paramount in our faith. And we wouldn't have had the success we've had if we weren't who we are and what we call ourselves. So we're, we're proud of the community uh, that is thriving now. And you made a sort of reference to this. You said it wasn't part of the Muslim culture, the outdoors. What do you think the reasons are for that? I can speak for myself initially. I grew up not knowing about the countryside or not knowing about the outdoors as somewhere being a place that benefits one's well-being or somewhere that is open and welcoming and free. If I didn't do it as a kid and if I didn't see people from my own community, my friends, my family doing it, why would I ever associate it as a place that I can go or would go? And I think that's one thing that people fail to recognise. People will often say, what's stopping you from going outside? Just put on your shoes and go. That's easy for people to say when it's what they did every day growing up on their doorstep. And Talia, it sounds like some of what Harun is describing mirrors your own experience as somebody who grew up in the city. And and you made this podcast, uh, Blossom Trees and Burnt Out Cars, and you, you talked to people who who did feel there was a, a, a barrier between them 
and nature. Talk, talk to us a little bit more about the type of stories you heard. Totally. So I think the barriers, there are just many and they overlap and they intersect. So Haroon just said someone saying, oh, why don't you just put your shoes on and go for a walk? It's like you have to also have the hiking boots in the first place. Some of the people that I was speaking to, Black Girls Hike, um, who bring black women together to hike in the outdoors. And it's really that feeling of safety, belonging, being understood. And even things like finding plus size hiking gear, all of these small things that unless it affects you, you don't always think about. When we talk about access to nature, the broader picture that I think impacts the vast majority of us is the right to roam. So in England, we don't have access to 92% of the land because of trespassing laws. That's a barrier that unless we're one of the few landowners, we all share. And I think for me, when I started to kind of connect to nature only recently during lockdown, I really realised that our relationship to nature reveals so much about our identity. It reveals a lot about class, about race, about sexism, about all these different issues. And like nature isn't a neutral subject. And I think that when we begin to interrogate our own relationship to nature, all of these other really important justice issues come up. And that's, I think, the key thing that I took from the podcast and all the different people that I spoke to. As we think about the solutions... I mean, one of the things that occurs to me listening to this conversation is, is part of this about taking nature to people rather than people to nature? In other words, you know, if urban areas have more green spaces so on people's doorsteps, isn't that more likely to engage people than it becoming a sort of big thing that you've got to go kind of a, a long distance to get to some green space? I've been involved in such work here in my local city of Coventry. I think greater work needs to be done to get more people active in local green spaces. And at the same time, uh, you know, getting people out into the countryside for the well-being benefits of getting outside. And also to uh, address the stubborn sort of statistics. Less than 1% of visitors to UK national parks come from ethnic minority communities. And that's a rather shocking statistic mm -hmm. that, that, that needs to, to change. There was an analysis done recently that showed that there's been massive real terms cuts to spending on public parks and local parks and the highest cuts are in the areas with the highest deprivation. And for me, getting people out into adventure and getting people out into local small adventure is all part of the same story. Yes, going to a local park, spending time there, feeling belonging can make you hike more. But I think also spending time in the great outdoors also want, makes you want to invest in more local nature as well. Like, I don't think that they're like entirely separate. I think it's one in eight people in the UK don't have a garden. It's quite a high proportion. And those spaces are vital for people. Talk to us about this feeling of being connected to nature, Talia. Uh, you know, it, if people are being systematically excluded... Mm -hmm from it i mean that is a massive deprivation isn't it and how do you expect people to act in sort of pro-environmental ways if they're totally unconnected from nature i think that's a really interesting point and i think absolutely the more you feel that you belong in nature the more it nurtures you the more you want to nurture nature back right but i also think that we we focus i think a lot on individual behavior which is important but if we're thinking about pro-environmental behavior in a summer where we've had so much sewage discharges into the seas and rivers. Definitely. Like those are the questions we need to 
also be asking. Yes, we can talk about people leaving crisp packets on the field. Sure, that's important. But who are the big players with the biggest power? How can we collectively hold these people and organisations to account? This is important. This is a point that was shared with me from Josie O'Driscoll, who um, is from the traveller community. And she was saying that many people from traveller community are already engaging in pro-environmental behaviour. So like upcycling, collecting scrap metal, like living symbiotically with the environment in times when travellers were able to travel, unlike now. And yet traveller communities are very, very rarely offered a seat at the table when it comes to climate change policy and discussion. And that's because we haven't really untangled this idea of prejudice and marginalisation from nature discussion. It's like I said before, nature isn't neutral. And I think that we need to think about that as part of it. And what are the other solutions? I mean, it's great that over the last few years, especially since the pandemic, there's been an emergence of groups like ours. You know, Talia, you just mentioned Black Girls Hikes, which are again pioneering, doing some fantastic work. Mm -hmm. Lots of people are talking like we're talking now, which is great, but we need to see action. If there's pioneering groups like ours who are experts in engaging communities and getting people outside, then what are we as a collective doing to enable and empower such communities? One of our biggest limitations is just internal resource and finance. You've had this incredible success uh, with Muslim hikers. What could support that externally that would make that easier for you or give you more scale? Yeah, just for perspective, our hikes are typically like 150 to 200 people. They're the massive sort of festival type walks, which inspire communities and empower people. Again, people will criticise this and say that, you know, we're, we're not uh, being considered to the environment, but I have my own thoughts on that. For every event we organise... We, we turn away the same amount of people. So events will typically sell out in two, three hours for 150 people. We're turning away the same amount of people. Wow. There's a demand for people to get outside. There's a demand for inclusive walks. So we, we need to increase our capacity to be able to broaden and diversify our walks. We want to organise hiking events in different parts of the country to reach more people. But also we want to find scalable and sustainable models of work. We don't want people to become reliant on these large type of walks naturally it's already happened that people will join our walks they'll gain independence and confidence to go away and walk with their own families their friends or mm -hmm. for solo adventure we've seen plenty of that which is wonderful uh, but we need investment that's going to help us grow as an organization we are experts in doing what we're doing we're doing incredibly well we haven't reinvented the wheel we've just created a safe space for community and that's what has inevitably allowed such massive organic growth talia so so you've had all these conversations on the podcast and, and, and just to finish, what is the change that is needed so that everyone feels welcome in nature and that they're benefiting from it too? I think there's a couple of changes that I would like to see. I would love to see a right to roam in England like they have in Scotland, because I think that's going to open up access to so many more people. I would love to see serious investment and reinvestment into local public park spaces. And I would love for anyone listening to this podcast who considers themselves to be like a nature enthusiast or interested in nature to also, if you're not already, think about how issues of racism, classism, sexism are part of our thinking on nature. Um, because I think that 
nature and justice, they go hand in hand. And the reason why I say that is for my own story. So when lockdown hit, which is like when a lot of these initiatives started, Haroon started his initiative in lockdown, I really felt that my reliance on nature just it suddenly came from nowhere I was like I'm relying on nature and walking in the woods in a way that I never have before and that's partly because of where I live now on the edge of London and there's a woodland behind my house which I'm incredibly lucky for I grew up on a council estate and although I loved it and I was very lucky that I had a garden on on my estate at the very edge of the estate there was a nature reserve that was small but it was always locked and it was a very very clear signal to me and my friends that kids from estates aren't to be trusted with nature. And I think those big gates, I internalised that message. As a side note, we still broke into the nature reserve because we were like, <laughs> we want to go and, you know, pick blackberries and drink lemonade and just hang out. We, we don't want to get up to no good. We just wanted to play. And my connection to nature is also my story of my changing class status. And that is a story that I think resonates with lots of other people and I wanted to bring them into the conversation as well. I think a lot of more people have been having those mini revelations during that kind of lockdown time. Well, look, it's been a great conversation. Uh, Talia Randall and Haroon Mota, thank you so much. Well, what did you think? Well, I'm going to be honest. When the subject came up as a potential episode, my feeling was I, I have a lot of warmth towards the YHA, but has, has perhaps the world moved on a bit? I, th- I wondered if that might have been what was underlying the story. But having had these conversations, it, it seems that I was completely wrong about that. That decline in people being able to access nature through YHA hasn't happened and that people were visiting. And it just seems so unfortunate that a byproduct of this period actually where p- people have ended up reconnecting with nature is this big black hole I know. in YHA's books. It's exactly the opposite to what you'd want to happen. It is. It's, it's, there must be some benefactor. Some Maybe there's a benefactor who's listening to this programme. Rachel told us that the cost of these properties is 10.3 million. Which, I mean, I wouldn't turn my nose up for that amount of money, but, but on the scale of a big national network, that feels fixable. I mean, it just feels such a shame that like more than a tenth of their properties are, are going to be sold off to fix this problem. But I'm really interested also in this sort of who gets access to nature. You know, lots of people have, in theory, access to nature, but who actually uses nature? The whole sort of cultural question mm. is really interesting. And how do you expand it by class, by race, you know, ethnic minority, gender, all of those issues. I do think it's a bit about having it on your doorstep, but it's also, uh, as Haroon said, you know, it's about it being safe and a place to go and do you feel welcomed and all of those things. Yeah, and hearing about Haroon's organisation and the the desire that is there is really inspiring. But yeah, lots more needs to be done to make everyone feel that nature is for them. And, and also, actually, that there isn't just one way of being in nature. Are we going to go off youth hostling together? I, just, I can't really use the term youth hostling about us, though. No. Late youth hostling? Extreme late youth hostling? Hostling. Second youth hostling? Next gen, late gen... <laughs> Gen X? Are we Gen X? Hostelling for those in the autumn of their lives? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe we can think about it. Just a couple of slackers hostelling. Hostelling.
You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Now, if you've got thoughts on what you've heard on today's show about youth hostels, about access to nature... Uh, or ideas for future shows, we really love to hear from you. Please do email us. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. Uh, we read every email we get and we read out the nice ones. That's the basic story. Um, this one comes from Catherine Downs and the subject is Forest Bathing Insights. Hi, I loved your episode today, Throwing Shade. This was an episode we did some weeks back. I want to give you my insights on forest bathing. I am a Reiki master practitioner, and during the pandemic, I started leading nature meditation sessions out in our local woods and meadows. Attendees experience profound relaxation and a deep connection with the environment, and we continue to meet on a regular basis. Uh, typical program outline. Phones on airplane, aka forest bathing mode. Oh, dear. Short, quiet walk up to the meditation area, transition time. Seated, uh-huh. guided, 20-minute yeah, yeah. meditation, focusing on breathing, our senses, mm-hmm. and the elements around us. Silence, slow walk around the trail for about 20 minutes back to the meditation area to chat, share experiences. Most people either struggle with being silent. I can hear Jeff would do that. Could you do one of those silent retreats? You hear of people going away for days sometimes, you know, how long do you think you could do? Well, I think this sounds more like my street, to be honest. Okay. Don't you think? Like 20 minutes of being silent. Yes. I mean, I must say, anyway, that uh, she goes on, Catherine, to say, my favourite forest bathing book is The Healing Magic of Forest Bathing by Julia Plevin. It's nice, easy read you can dip into. I would offer to leave you in a forest bathing session, but I live in Westchester County, New York, so a little far. Go explore, have fun, lots of reasons to be cheerful. What a fantastic email. Isn't it? I I wouldn't rule out a visit to Westchester. Definitely not. Now, this comes from Alistair Balderson, who says... Hi, Jeff and Ed and the rest of the RTBC team. My family and I recently had a holiday in Slovenia and I just kept thinking what a cheerful place it was. So I thought maybe you could do one of your country specials about it. We haven't done one of those for a while, have we? Yeah. There were loads of cyclists and even some special cycle maintenance stations around so you could fix any problems. They had cheese vending machines. Uh Aha. And this made me think that Ed's dream of a healthy vending machine Uh wasn't so far off. Alistair has also enclosed some photographs, including this vending machine. I'll tell you what it reminded me of. You know, in a science fiction film when somebody has been uh, contaminated and then they're kind of put behind glass. That's (laughs) that's what the cheese sandwiches in this machine look like to me. You see, you, look, you just want to do everything you can to, <laughs> to sort of say it can never can be possible. Yeah, you, you, you may be on something there. 
It says it was green and clean, very little litter, and lots of veggie or vegan food options, which isn't always the case. And as I say, he's enclosed some photographs of not not just the vending machine, but also the bike maintenance station. How are you on bike maintenance? Terrible. I can't really do very much. But look, I think we should pause on the vending machine issue. Well, does it make you reconsider if it's good enough for Slovenia? This is the most convincing version of it I've seen to date. That that was very conciliatory of me. I, I know, think. but what, think of all the sort of grief you've given me. I've just I've just moved in your direction a little. Okay. Well, thank you. I'm going to retreat again now. Well, thank you for moving in my direction. I think there's further to go. <laughs> anyway, well, look, I'm really grateful for that email because you know I'm I'm looking for sort of vindication. Yes, and there it is in Slovenia. There it is. And then the last one comes from Cosmic Foxglove. Good name. Hmm. Subject, I nearly threw up in my cornflakes. And the message is, love the show. Been a listener since episode one, et cetera, et cetera. Please know more. Jeff discussing unmentionable things nearly vomited during my breakfast. Oh, I think I know. I think I know what it is. And when I say that, it's because Rachel just told me. Um, it was the conversation we had with Catelyn Moran, which got into how men don't talk about their bodies. And I, I thought I was trying to, um, I, was, I was trying to be the change that you want to see in the world. A bit of body positivity, body odour positivity. Right. I think maybe we won't talk about it again. Because we don't want Cosmic Fox thrown up in the cornflakes. We're compounding the sin, aren't we? But was it a sin? Well, people will have to go back to the episode and find out. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho. We're in the outro, ho, ho. We are, and you're back at work, of course, after your summer recess. Have you got a new pencil case? No, but a new lunchbox. Does your wife take a photograph of you on the step of your house every <laughs> new year before no. you go back to Parliament? I think not. <laughs> Nor do I take a photograph of her, although she does have a big... Judi- when the judicial term opens, there's a big judicial procession, I think. Can we go? I don't know. I'll- Can't we line the route? I'm not sure she'd want you waving in the crowd. Thanks a lot. Just confirmed what I already suspected there. Um, shall we thank our guests? Yes, let's do that. I'd like to thank our guests, Sally Nutland, Haroon Mota and Talia Randall. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish London. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composer music. Our items were made by James Deacon. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 